John chapter 1. I know that it's moving towards the holiday season, but there is something that may happen this coming weekend that hasn't happened in almost two years. So the last two years have been a little crazy, right? And there are lots of things that have been greatly impacted by the COVID variants and all the virus stuff, all that happened starting in February and March of 2020. So something may happen this weekend in an industry that has been hit as hard as almost any other industry with what happened with COVID. It's not the restaurant industry, although that's been hit heavily. Retail was hit hard. Churches are about 50% nationwide of attendance pre-COVID. This weekend coming up, though, we may have our first legitimate blockbuster movie in almost two years. The first movie to make millions and millions of dollars. We've had some sort of ones that they call pandemic hits, but we're talking about a real-life major hit. What's the movie? Anybody know? Spider-Man. The new Spider-Man comes out this weekend. Already has the second most pre-sale tickets of all time. Now, I know some of you in this room, that is news to you because you don't know anything about this. But here's what I want to talk about for a moment. Spider-Man, this research has been done. Spider-Man is by far the most popular comic book uh, character of all time. And it's kind of a strange thing to think about because he doesn't have the greatest powers. He's not the strongest superhero. He's a little whiny at times, just to be honest. He's a teenager. So why do you think Spider-Man is the most popular comic book character of all time? There's some, I heard web shooters. Somebody, what did somebody else say? People can relate. What's Spider-Man's tagline? He's your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. When Spider-Man came out, all the other characters were like Superman. Like, who can relate to Superman, right? Like, can't happen. Spider-Man's just a normal teenager that gets bit by a spider. None of us want that to happen, but it's possible. Now, what came after that's probably not possible. We're not going to be transformed into a superhero, but he's a normal kind of kid that lives in the neighborhood and saves people. He is the neighborhood superhero that lives among them. It's relatable. There's a scene in the Spider-Man 2, that's three trilogies ago. That'll tell you how popular the character is. Three trilogies ago of Spider-Man movies, Spider-Man 2, when he has just saved an entire train from peril. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the 18-year-old movie. All right. He saves a whole train of people. He crawls back onto the train. He's worn out and exhausted. And the enemy, the villain, gets on the train. And one by one, New Yorkers start saying, if you want to get to him, you got to go through me. He's one of us. And there's this kind of vibe that he is their guy. They say, what does that all have to do with what we're talking about today? My favorite paraphrase, somebody's translation of John 1.14 comes from the message paraphrase. And it says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus 
is our friendly neighborhood Savior. I don't mean that in any way to diminish who he is or the grandeur or the greatness of who he is as God. But part of the reason that Christmas is so amazing is because we serve a God who is relatable. And we all desire that and want that. Just like comic book readers want a superhero that they can relate to, we, in real life, not comic book, real life, have a Savior that we can relate to. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking in this series, What Child Is This?, about who is this child in the manger? And we've talked about the fact that he is God, that he is completely, essentially, fully a God, that he was eternally present before the manger and after the manger. He is outside of time. Last week we talked about that he is the light of the world, that in a world filled with darkness, he brings a light. But this week we want to focus on that question itself because the question itself gives us an important answer. What child is this? He was born A child. Flesh and blood. Baby in a manger. John 1 verses 14 through 18 say this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So this entire prologue that started with in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This grandeur of all that is happening, this heavenly understanding of who Jesus is, we return after several verses to that phrase, the Word. And so there is no doubt in our mind, this is not a a vague pronoun of He or or someone. This is a direct reference to the Word in chapter 1, verse 1. And it says that Word that was in the beginning and was with God and was God and was with God in the beginning and through all Him things were created. That Word became flesh. Now here's what's interesting about the original language. When they wrote became flesh here, it didn't use the phrase for became human or became a man or became one of us even. What it uses is the term literally for the body you have. It's literally, the word flesh means flesh, but what it means is not in any kind of glorified, um, um, high-thinking way. It is the most rudimentary way to say your skin. In fact, it would have been a shock to anyone in a Greek mindset reading this because they truly believed that the spirit was good and the flesh was evil. And for them to hear, great God Almighty became flesh was almost sacrilegious. The Word, the one who was and is and is to come, that Word... God Almighty, the one that spoke and creation happened, the one that holds it all together, that word became skin. And then it says, and he dwelt among us. 
Now, that's the phrase that Eugene Peterson in the message translates, moved into the neighborhood. And the reason he does that is because the word there literally is that he made his tent among us. He moved into our area. But in their language, the way that it is used, there would have been a different connotation that the people of Israel would have had. When it says there, not only did he move into the neighborhood, that he make his tent among us, what that word actually is, is he tabernacled among us. Now, if you remember, the tabernacle is an Old Testament concept. It comes after Moses and the children of Israel get out of Egypt. They establish the law, and then God in the law establishes for them to build a movable tent that they are to have in order for the people of God to be able to carry out the worship of God wherever they may be. But the real reason for the tabernacle to be there and to move with them was that for those people at that time, the tabernacle of God represented the presence of God, the manifest real presence of God among them. That God Almighty was descending to the earth and he was living among them at the tabernacle that's been established for them to worship. And anytime they moved from place to place, they would pick up the stakes. Now, I just want you to know, okay, I'm, I know this is shocking to you all. I am not what you would call a camp connoisseur. Like camping is not my thing, all right? I have put up a tent or two, and that's probably it in my life. And when I think of tents, I think of like, you know, a tent, like not very big, not huge. The tabernacle was hundreds of feet long and wide. Football field, think about that. That every time they moved, they picked up all the stakes. Imagine the stakes that had to be there. All the coverings that had to be there. It, was, it had coverings all around. It had special places. It had a place for the sacrifices that happened. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in there. But God had given it to them to say, this is my presence. This is me among you. It was to represent for them what had been represented earlier by the cloud by day and the fire by night as they were leaving Egypt. This is God's presence. And so when it says the word God Almighty who was in the beginning, from the beginning, before the beginning and was with God and is God, that word took on a human form, took on our flesh. Why? Because he was demonstrating and manifesting the presence of God among us. God moved into our neighborhood. Adrian Rogers, former pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church, said the way to think about John 1.14 is that Jesus and God was translated into our language. Anybody here ever been in a place where your language is not the predominant language being spoken? Right? Anybody ever been there? Right? How uncomfortable is that when you don't know what's being said about you or around you? Right Now, for most of us, that means that we're in a non-English. But we do have people in the room that English is not their native language. And so for some of them, moving to the United States or being in the United States for the first time is a harrowing. It doesn't matter what the other language is. When you can't understand what is happening around you, it is a difficult experience. Right? And in the midst of all of that, trying to figure out what's going on can be Harrowing. The first time that I ever 
made a trip to uh, Brazil in the airport. Um, I'll never forget because on the, and I've told you this before, on the airlines from here to Brazil, they speak both English and Portuguese. But when we got to the airport in Brazil, for some reason, they didn't find it necessary to talk English there. I don't know why. We, you know, they had Americans in the room. They're supposed to do that for us. And so buying the simplest thing, something to, you know, getting something to drink, getting something to eat, finding out, reading signs to try to figure out where you're supposed to go. It's harrowing. And you just wish, because we don't get our interpreters till we get to our final destination, that you had somebody that could stand beside you and go, let me tell you what that says. Right? When you're in those places, an interpreter, or these days, Google Translate, is your best friend. Adrian Rogers, in his preaching on this, said, that what happened in Jesus is he's interpreting who God is in our language among us. And what we get from that is that God came in the form of Jesus, fully man. And as John MacArthur says, not humanity before the fall, by the way. He wasn't in the form of Adam before the fall. He came as Man after the fall. Well, what does that mean? It means that he lived and he grew and he died. It means that he had weakness, that he was tempted, that he was tested, that the reality of what was happening in his life is that he lived a fully human experience. Julio referenced this a little earlier, when, uh, um, talking about the fact that, that he would have gone through puberty, that he would have grown, that he would have had all of these things happen in our lives. One of my favorite descriptions of that, and this is a little bit longer than what I normally read, comes from Max Lucado in his book, God Came Near. Just listen how he describes Jesus and think if you think of him in this way. This is it all happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. As moments go, one appeared no different to those around than any other. If you could somehow pick it up off the timeline and examine it, it would look exactly like the ones that have passed while you have read these words. It came and it went. It was preceded and succeeded by others just like it. It was one of the countless moments that have been marked time since eternity became measurable. But in reality, this particular moment was like none other. God became a man. And while the creatures in and around Bethlehem and the entire earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. The omnipotent in one instance made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young teenage girl. God as a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life coming into creation. He was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in amniotic fluids of his mother. God came near. He came not as a flash of a light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one who first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. And weren't it for some shepherds in the field, there would have been no reception. And weren't for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. 
Children played in the street with them. And if the preacher in the synagogue had known who was listening to his sermons, Jesus probably had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him. His knees could have been bony, but one thing was for sure. He was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. Weak, weary, afraid of failure, susceptible to wooing women. He got colds, he burped, he had body odor, he got his feelings hurt, his feet got tired, and his head ached. And to think of Jesus in that way is almost irreverent. It's not something we like to do, it's uncomfortable. It's easier just to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. It's easier to clean the manure from around the manger, to wipe the sweat out of his eyes, and to pretend he never snored or blew his nose. He's easier to stomach that way. There's something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant and packaged and predictable. But don't do it. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and the muck of our world, for only if we let him in can he pull us out. He moved into the neighborhood. And the question that we ask, what child is this? It is a human child. And why does that matter? Well, it tells us in what we read there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the second part of John 1.14 is this. And we saw his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In his coming and in the incarnation, he translated the character and the actions of God for us. We saw, we beheld, we got a glimpse of his glory. God revealed to us in the flesh. We sang Hark the Herald just a few minutes ago, and I love the second part of that verse that says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. He lived among us and with us and for us so that he could reveal to us the glory of God. In fact, he reveals four things for us in this passage, and then we're done today. The first is this. He reveals God's glory. That's what it says right off the bat, that he came to reveal the glory of God. And the word used for glory is the word that's used throughout the New Testament for glory. It's the word that comes from the usage in the Old Testament for glory. It means weight or heaviness or the reality or the essence In their day and time, something was judged whether or not it was pure and right and authentic by its weight. When you read through the Old Testament, there is countless times when people are told to make sure that they do correct weights and measurements. Because one of the easiest ways to cheat people was to make the weight or the measurement improper and not to give them the real stuff. 
The word sincere comes from something similar in their culture where they would often add wax to things and it was called insincere if they didn't have a completely pure and right thing. And so when it talks about the glory, the weight of God, it means the purity of who he is, the essence of who he is, the weight of him. The New Testament Greek word is doxa, where we get doxology from, a word of praise or a word about God's glory. And Shekinah is the Old Testament word that they have similar reference points when you put them together. Shekinah was the absolute glory and weight of God. To this day, when we talk about things that are serious or things that are important, we'll talk about these are the weightier matters. These are the things that are heavy on us. We talk about burdens that may be particularly troublesome as heavy burdens that we feel the weight on them. And the weight of God is not intended to give us any kind of distress, but it's the heaviness, the reality of who he is. When Solomon dedicated the temple in Second Chronicles, when it tells us about that moment, he is dedicating the temple and he gives a prayer to God. And as he does, it says the glory of God, the Shekinah of God, the weight of God so fills the place that you can't even get in it. And they just stand outside the priest and Solomon and they give praise to God. In the Old Testament at times, at the tabernacle in particular, when they would worship God, that there would be a light or an essence or some kind of glow that would come upon them. The glory of God would descend. And what it tells us in Scripture is that when we see Jesus live and act and move, it is as if the spotlight on the glory of who God is, the weight of who God is, has visited this planet. Now, there are ways that you can see this. You see it in all that he does, but in particular, think about the power miracles he does in the in the Gospels. What do you mean the power of miracles? I mean, there's a huge storm wailing and he stands up and says, shut up. The, the actual phrase from that in the New Testament is be quiet, better translated, not as, could you just be quiet for a minute? But as the parent who has asked their children multiple times to not talk and then gets to the end and says, Could you be quiet? That's not what it is, right? Hey, be quiet! Knock it off! And what happens to the wind and waves? Stops. And think about the power miracles he does. Where he... We don't understand how to change atoms from one thing to another. And he just simply kind of says the word. And at a party for a wedding, all the water turns into wine. God's in complete control. The sovereignty of the situation. Nothing was out of his control. The thing I love about that boat story in particular is, how many of y'all, anybody here sleep through the storms on Friday night? Just sleep through them. Yeah, we got some. I know. We had one in my house. I know. Right? Some just, you don't wake up, right? The thing is, the disciples really think they're about to die. And what is Jesus doing in that story? He's asleep on a pillow, it says. You know what that means? He's out. Because he doesn't care at that moment. Sovereignty of God. He knows he's in control. 
Jesus revealed the glory and the majesty of God. Secondly, Jesus reveals God's grace. You know what's interesting about the book of John? The word grace is used throughout the entire New Testament. It's used in multiple places, in multiple books. In the book of John, it is only used in chapter 1 and not anywhere else. It's the only time this concept is discussed. Now, there are other places that it's referenced, but this is where it's discussed. And what it says here in particular is, he showed God's glory. And then you can take the next two phrases, full, God's full glory. That actually is the word that it probably does instead of truth and Grace, but his full glory is demonstrated how? By demonstrating the grace of God and the truth of God. God's undeserved favor. You think about the number of times in Scripture that Jesus healed people that didn't do anything to deserve being healed. He just walked up to a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath and healed him. Maybe they petitioned, maybe they asked, but there was nothing that they had done to earn. They didn't pay for it, they didn't give him anything. He just freely gave. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is revealing that in spite of the sinfulness of us and who we are, that he is open and ready to freely give grace to us. Next week, as we finish up this series, we're going to explore the heart of God and how his love shows itself in the birth of Christ. He not only reveals the glory of God, he not only reveals the grace of God, he also reveals the truth of God. He taught as no other person has ever taught. People sometimes, Jesus was a a great moral teacher. He was not a great moral teacher. He was the greatest teacher that has ever lived. And he's more than that. That's not all he is, but he is the greatest. When you read what it says in there, that, that he spoke as someone who they had not even had any kind of, they'd never seen anything like it. And every time he spoke, he revealed the truth of who God is. And what God's plans were. The incarnate child in the manger revealed the glory of God, revealed the grace of God, revealed the truth of God, and then finally revealed the ways of God. He showed us how we should live. I read this week that said something that said that without the incarnation, Jesus could not have been an example for us of the way that we should live. Max Lucado, in that part I read earlier, kind of concludes it by saying, that's why we need to listen to him. Love your neighbor was spoken by a man whose neighbors tried to kill him. The challenge to leave family for the gospel was issued by one who kissed his mother goodbye in the doorway. Pray for those who persecute you came from the lips that would soon ask God to forgive his murderers. And I am always with you are the words of a God who in one instant did the impossible to make it all possible for you and me. Sometimes people look at the life of Jesus and we all know perfection is something that we will never obtain outside of Christ making us completely whole. But when we look at the life of Jesus, he gives us examples of the way that we should treat people, speak to people, declare the word of the Lord, confront people. 
And in the midst of it all, it comes from a real human being whose divinity is not weakened at all by his humanity, but his humanity is not upgraded at all because of his divinity. He is completely human. The Word, God in Jesus, put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. As we think about the reality of that, and we think about the reason why he did it, which we'll explore a little bit even more next week, I'm overwhelmed with the reality of the distance that God traveled to allow me to know that he loved me as much as he does. And the things that I let get in the way of my relationship with the Lord seem so small in moments when I think about his majesty and his glory descending for us. And so this Christmas, as we contemplate what the child in the manger is, let us first recognize it is a child who sacrificed so much for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you just for the reality of the distance that was traveled in your plan by your Son. For our salvation, for your glory, to reveal to us who you are so that we can understand you better, to feel and know what it means to have a God who cares for us. For the distance that you traveled is mind-blowing, and yet we believe it to be true, and we're thankful for it. We pray, Lord, in this moment, if there are those in this room that do not yet know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would finally come to the place where they accept you as their Lord. Lord, if they get questions about that or they wonder about that, today would be the day they would get answers. And Lord, we pray that above all else, that your name would be the name that is lifted high in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.